This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rick Simon, the Program Manager for the Secure Cloud Project and a contractor in the Defense Innovation Unit. Rick, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. This is a, another in a series of interviews I've been doing with DIU, and I'm really excited because you guys are doing some really cutting edge, really interesting projects. And this project specifically is about secure cloud management. It is an issue I think every agency is wrestling with. So that's where I want to start at the beginning. Discuss the secure cloud management prototype and the goals of the project. You guys just finished off in the, earlier this summer a successful set of prototypes, but what is it? How does it work? Give me some background. I have to backtrack just a bit to explain a bit about DIU's mission. What we really are trying to do it at DIU is to uncover unmet needs within the DOD, identify commercial solutions that may be able to address those needs, and then execute prototype projects with a sponsoring DOD agency to test them. The Secure Cloud Management Project is designed to address an unmet need, and it so happens it's DIU's own unmet need. The DOD mandates the use a cloud access point which is affectionately known as the CAP, through which DOD users must pass to connect to cloud service providers. It sits as a gateway between cloud service offerings and the DOD network, protecting the network from vulnerabilities in the cloud. The challenge is, especially for us at DIU, is the existing CAP architecture is scalability, performance, and usability constraints that make it really hard for us to fulfill our own mission. In particular, we extensively collaborate with technology companies, most of whom are non-traditional DOD suppliers. They're not familiar with the ways in which one connects to the uh, greater DOD. We use, for instance, uh, cloud-based document sharing and video conferencing extensively, and video conferencing is all but impossible if it must pass through the cap, making all of those U-turns back and forth between the cloud service provider and those who are connecting to it. So because it's an essential part of uh, DIU's mission, we started a project to find out if there were alternatives that would allow us to provide the same level of security and control as the CAP without having to pass through the CAP. And in particular, going directly from where we sit at, at DIU to those uh, companies that we're trying to engage with. So DIU is the customer for this project and we're trying to, we were trying to solve our own problem. We published the uh, RFP for the Secure Cloud Management Project in November of 2019. We signed three prototype agreements in May of 2020 and the project ran for a year. It concluded in, uh, in June of this year. And interestingly, the entire project was run during the time of COVID. In the end, we, we actually concluded that all three prototypes that we assessed met the t- key technical goals of the project and therefore were successful prototypes. Well, you know, we think they could all be authorized by the DOD as alternative caps. So that's why they all received success memos. Okay, so a couple things to back up there. It, it, very interesting that DIU, this was an unmet need for DIU that you all decided to solve. 
I've done several interviews with DIU over the past couple of years. This may be the first one that I remember, or has there been others where DIU had ran into a similar challenge and, and had to solve it on their own? I believe it is. I have not been on uh, at DIU the entire uh, for the entire six years of our existence, but I believe it is the only one. When you all decided to go forward with it, did the leadership at DIU go, yes, let's solve this? Or was there a little bit of hesitancy? Because that's not really what your goal is to solve your problems. It's to solve the armies or the air forces or someone else's problems. It was a broad-based issue for us. Uh, I don't think there was any hesitancy whatsoever. We funded the effort ourselves, and uh, we, you know, we were anxious to find alternatives that would allow us to do what we need to do. The other piece of this I think is interesting is, and, and I want to go through what the prototypes were, but all three prototypes passed the grade. And again, I, I go back through, I'm not sure how unusual that is. It seems unusual, but maybe not. Yeah, we didn't really uh, design this as a bake-off between the three. What we really wanted to do is look at alternative ways in which we could provide that level of security and control. And, you know, my, as a project manager, it was my hope all along that all three of them would make the grade. So I was really glad to see that that actually came to pass. And for many reasons that we'll get to later in the interview, it's, it's really good news, not just for DOD, but really for agencies in general, because while DOD has the cloud access points, the, the cab, as you said, agencies are dealing with the trusted internet connection, which is very similar. And it's very, you know, TIC 3.0 is really looking at ways to address the security challenges without having to go back through the tick. So this in many ways is, is really good news, not just for DOD, but for the broader government at large. So let's start with the three different prototypes. You had Google Cloud, you had Zscaler, and you had McAfee. Without getting maybe into the nitty gritty, give me a sense of how maybe each of those address this challenge and, and maybe at a high level, how did the prototypes work? How many people? Just give me as much as you can about how the process. All three of them, as it turns out, really offered some similar capabilities. They all offered what are known as SASE services, secure access service edge services, and they all offered a broad range of zero trust capabilities. So they were they were all similar in that regard. One of the interesting things is in the original AOI, which is a, a, another word for an RFP, we didn't include the phrase zero trust. You know, the DOD has become very focused on uh, zero trust capabilities and uh, zero trust architectures. And it just so happened that all three of the, the uh, prototypes offered those kind of capabilities. I think, you know, Zscaler and McAfee, they're broad, established, integrated platforms, very well regarded. Uh, Gartner, Gartner puts them in the, you know, leader quadrant. They are also, both of them, doing a very good job of going through the FedRAMP and impact level authorization processes. There are various components of each of their platforms that are authorized today and more to come. With Google, theirs was a little bit different. Uh, Their solution was the only containerized solution, Kubernetes containerized solution. So it, it offered an interesting promise of instant scalability. What they actually did with that containerized solution is they brought in a subcontractor, Palo Alto Networks, that provided a lot of the security stack 
that would provide SASE services and zero trust capabilities. So it became encapsulated inside their containerized solution. As an interesting approach, it was a, a little bit different virtualized cloud access point. So it was a pretty unique approach to it. Interesting in that the two of the three were very similar using their platforms, using their existing technologies, but then Google obviously went in a different direction. From your perspective, how were you able to measure what did success look like? Walk me through the pilots and the prototypes a little bit, and this just in the sense of how many people, how many different machines, how did each of how did you test each of those different approaches out? We actually used the entire user base at DIU as uh, guinea pigs, so to speak. We split our population into three groups, and each group was subject to one of the prototypes. And uh, so they, you know, downloaded the agents, they worked through those prototypes, and then we went through an assessment period. I actually think the assessment was pretty disciplined in that we wanted to ensure that we were assessing for CAF equivalency. So we partnered with DISA to develop the assessment criteria. They drew from the uh, Secure Cloud Computing Architecture document. The, it's also known as the SCCA uh, because that most, most directly defines CAP requirements. But as the project progressed and it became clear that Zero Trust was uh, becoming a more important part of uh, the DOD's future, we also asked DISA to draw from a draft of the Zero Trust reference architecture it's now in published form, but it was a draft at that time. The uh, SRG uh, and various other reference architectures to develop a set of criteria. They ended up with 77 different tests focused on CAP equivalency, of course, but also zero trust capabilities, endpoint security, network security, performance, which was really important to us, and various other security and control tests. Then we engaged with each of the vendors' uh, third-party assessment organizations to perform the actual assessments. Uh, the results were published and made widely available uh, within the DOD. 77 different tests. <laughs> yeah. It's death by a, a, a thousand needles or something. Were you a little taken like, oh, like how are we going to pass 77 of them? Because uh, my, math is not my strong suit, but to get an A, you need like to pass 70 of them or something, or did you have to pass all 77? None of the vendors passed all 77. In the assessment, there were a few, there were a handful of tests, for example, that required red teaming. And we did not have the wherewithal either ourselves or through our security service provider to, to do red teaming. So we didn't do those tests. There were, uh, a, you know, a couple of tests that had to do with IPv6. And 20 years later, IPv6 is still not quite there in a lot of cases. But, uh, you know, they all passed over 90% of their tests. And that was very encouraging. Uh, to us. And I think that's the key is, is you know, you're never going to get the 100% solution, right? If we wait for the 100% solution, it's never going right. to come. You need something that's going to be, you know, based on risk and, and how much risk you can take. 
Rick, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Rick Simon, the program manager for the Secure Cloud Management Project and a contractor in the Defense Innovation Unit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rick Simon, the program manager for the Secure Cloud and... My guest today is Rick Simon, the program manager for the Secure Cloud Management Project and a contractor in the Defense Innovation Unit. You have these success memos that everyone passed. Is DIU going to implement one of those and then share their results, obviously, as you mentioned, in more broadly across DOD? We actually have been sharing more broadly across DOD. Yes, the DIU will select, it will likely select one of these prototypes to go into production. It'll likely be in the first quarter. We think we could pick any of them and be very successful with them, but we'll have to pick one. Our needs, as as I articulated at the front, are really a little bit different than other DOD entities. So we'll pick the one that best fits our needs. But in the meantime, we have been talking to a lot of entities uh, about the project and the results of the project. During the course of the project, I personally briefed probably 15 different DOD entities on what we were doing, and then they followed along. I created a little newsletter, so to speak, of the progress we were making in the project. And then once it was complete, we we put all of the the artifacts, all of the the, the third-party assessment results document and a a lot of other documentation about about the project in a uh, secure place where anybody from DOD could uh, get to it and uh, download and read the materials that that, uh, were prepared. So we think that, that, you know, various DOD entities will embrace it and at the very least use it as guidance as they uh, figure out their own zero trust way forward. You mentioned you guys will eventually pick yours and then you've briefed others. How about civilian agencies? Uh, do you foresee uh, this also, are you getting interest from civilian agencies? Interesting. You mentioned that. We have had a, a civilian agency reach out and ask us about it. We haven't yet briefed them on it, but we plan to. I, I think this it certainly could reach beyond our own particular needs at the DOD. Absolutely. I mean, I think as I was mentioning earlier, the TIC 3.0 effort, just generally speaking, I think everybody sees that has been a big challenge and, and something like this could probably meet the same requirements and na- same needs, as you said, ensuring that it meets the same as the cloud access point in terms of secure, but just in a different approach. You mentioned zero trust, and and let's go down that path a little bit, because as you've said, and it's become a much more important piece, and with the cybersecurity executive order from President Biden, that's also agencies are all under the gun to implement pieces and parts of the zero trust architecture. How does these prototypes build into or, or or part of this idea of this zero trust framework? DOD's zero trust reference architecture, the central part of it is to, and I'll quote it here, uh, secure, manage, and monitor every device, user, application, and network transaction occurring at the perimeter and or within a network enclave. Uh, That's directly out of the uh, zero trust reference architecture. These prototypes exhibited that capability through their control mechanisms and through their ability to to monitor all of those different uh, points. 
one of the learnings that we got from this is, is that, you know, they can't do it alone. They need to work in concert with endpoint security, with uh, user identity services, with, with a SIEM, and, and actually with the cloud service provider vendor's own security and control mechanisms. So they all have to work in concert together to truly deliver a, a zero trust capability. And, and they all demonstrated that in, in uh, the prototypes that we ran at DIU. We also learned that policies and policy implementation is kind of everything in a zero trust world. If you don't get the policies right, you can have the best tool to use in the world and it will, you know, do a really good job of implement, of enforcing policies that are improper. So if you don't have them done right. So I, you know, the whole uh, technical implementation of policies is really hard. It's really time consuming and it's really iterative. Is that where you started as you're putting together not just the RFP or you did a thing, a commercial solutions opening, a CSO for this, but did you start like, okay, once we decide, okay, we're going to test out these three technologies, let's start with the policy or because zero trust became much more important, maybe a little bit after the pilot started, it got kind of folded in later. Walk me through a little bit about how you got from idea to prototype. Yeah, you know, we knew all along that the, the policy side of it would be really important, pretty clear in the SCCA that, that there are a series of policies that need to be, need to be implemented. And, uh, you know, it, it just, you know, the project unfolded. We didn't imagine all of this ahead of time. We just saw that there was a, you know, this was a, a very heavy lift on the policy side. And it started to consume it as quite a bit. Uh, I really think that the government in general is has policies and directives for everything everywhere. And I, and I personally believe that we would be well served within the DOD to have a, an entity that could really, that, that understood the way in which policy implementation needs to occur in a zero trust world and be able to normalize a lot of the policies that exist around the department so that they in fact can be implemented by uh, one of these platforms or multiple platforms, frankly. Was that maybe the biggest surprise from this prototype, from this effort, that how important those policies were? And, and to be clear, when we talk about policies, we're not talking about, you know, section you know, 1A of FISMA or U.S. Code 93 point, you know, we're talking about the, the policies that actually run the tools. Like, yes. so Rick Simon's allowed to see this system and this data and, and, and that that's the policy we're talking about here. Yes, that was one of the big learnings. I actually think another very big learning was that endpoint devices create a special challenge, especially BYOD endpoint devices. In general, the DOD employees have uh, government-furnished equipment, so they're completely controlled by the DOD. You can put agents on them. You can lock them down pretty well. You can ensure that you know, they, they ha have a clear posture that is acceptable when accessing information. But in, you know, in the world that presented itself to us 
in March of 2020 when COVID struck and, and we all had to work from home, there, there was a lot more need to be able to access information from BYOD devices. And, and a kind of related thing is uh, reservists. Uh, many reservists have their day job endpoint device that is probably pretty secure, but their daytime employer is not going to let the DOD drop an agent onto that device so that it can completely lock down and control that device. So we learned over the course of the project that endpoint posture is really, really important. It's increasingly complex as people begin to use BYOD devices to access uh, DOD information, and it's actually still largely unsolved. Uh, I think there's a lot to work to do uh, on that front. Clientless access would be a really good thing uh, if it can be done properly. So I'm going to have to ask you, Rick, uh, is this one of the areas where the, they didn't pass the test when it came to BYOD endpoints? Because in a sense, if I have my personal laptop and I'm going to a DOD application, aren't I still going in through DOD's network or no, because I don't have access to that network because my laptop's mine and not yours, so to speak? I think that's an, an area where we could have done a lot better job. We primarily tested GFE devices, government-owned and operated and secured devices. I think that's an area that some follow-on work would be really well served. In fact, our prototypes at DIU uh, were limited in some way from the greater DOD. Remember, we were trying to solve our own problem, and it was o over the course of the last year that uh, others recognized the same problem and have become interested in what, what we were doing. But our project itself had limitations. So, for instance, we don't use Microsoft 365 for our, uh, you know, email and video conferencing and other, uh, you know, office collaboration capabilities. We use a different platform. And so we didn't test Microsoft 365. We are 100% cloud-based. So all of the apps that we use for productivity are uh, SaaS apps. So we didn't test IaaS and PaaS apps at all. We operate outside the uh, NipperNet. So we didn't test access to cloud services from within the NipperNet. And, you know, we use our own authentication platform that is uh, not common across the DOD. So, you know, there were some limitations in what we were doing from a broader point of view. And we have recommended to the organization that a follow-on project that tests some of those capabilities or follow-on uh, contract mod to, to test those capabilities would be uh, money well spent. And is that in the works? It's being discussed. There is no money on the table to do it as of yet. And I imagine part of that could be if the Air Force, the Army, or somebody else comes to you and says, we want to test these prototypes on the NipperNet, as an example, and they bring some money to the table, that's one way this maybe could come together. Correct. Because I think that that's the one thing people have to understand about DIU as well, is a lot of the projects you all work on, the other services or defense agencies are bringing you the problem and the money, and then you can go about trying to solve the problem, right? 
Yes, that's correct. And the, you know, the contract authority that we did this under actually provides that kind of flexibility to do, you know, follow on uh, contract extensions uh, to test additional uh, things like those that I rattled off. Rick, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Rick Simon, the program manager for the Secure Cloud Management Project and a contractor in the Defense Innovation Unit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rick Simon, the program manager for the Secure Cloud and... My guest today is Rick Simon, the program manager for the Secure Cloud Management Project and a contractor in the Defense Innovation Unit. If another duty agency or military service wanted to, to look at the three prototypes you tested and pick one of them, they could do it through this contract modification. They, they don't necessarily have to go through a whole new series of, of tests and, and procurements. They could ask, you know, potentially each one of those vendors or one vendor or two vendors for feedback on, on almost like an, uh, uh, an RFI type and then make a decision from there based on the commercial solution openings uh, approach that you guys used. Do I have that right? Or is there, is there some more uh, pieces and yeah, parts to that, it? That's pretty correct. Uh, you know, this, all of uh, DIU's projects are, are run using the other transactions or OTA method of contracting. And the OTA contracting authority is, is for prototyping of prom- promising solutions to identified problems. And so they, you know, they tend to be very problem specific, but requirements light. So that really fits with what we like to do with the technology community. Technologists, I spent my entire career on the high tech side of the world. And I know that technologists are incredibly creative people and they really do their best work when they're given the problem uh, and the solution is in their hands. And so, you know, we had the illustration of Google where they came up with a very different approach that seems pretty interesting. We didn't specify that at all. We, we allowed the prototype vendors to come up with creative solutions to the problem. So back to the uh, OTA, they, you know, they tend to be faster because you don't have a hundred page specification documents and uh, they allow you to do these projects and be flexible in the way in which you execute them. Now, the way we do it at DIU is that the vendors compete for a prototype. And in, our, in this case, in the Secure Cloud Management case, there were 29 respondents and we chose three. So the competition side of a government contract occurred when they won the prototype. And that means that they can then go from prototype to production contract under the OTA production contract structure without having to recompete. So that's a long-winded to say way to say, yes, you're correct. A, if an agency wants to pick up one of these three solutions and go to production with them, they can absolutely do that through the contract mechanism that, that we have in place at DIU. And let me just put one finer point on this. Now, this is only for DOD if 
DHS or, or Treasury or Justice or whomever wants to do it, they couldn't necessarily build off of your OTA, could they? That's an excellent question. I believe OTAs are limited to DOD, but I actually don't know the answer. All right. I know some agencies like uh, NASA has OTA authority. I think the FAA may have OTA authority. GSA has the CSO authority and ODHS has the CSO authority. And Rick, we've talked a lot about the secure cloud management effort and it's really a fascinating effort. So congratulations on getting those prototypes through the process and getting the success memos out there. Uh, obviously more to follow up on it as this gets together. This project's done, what comes next? What, what are you working on today? And what are some of the other projects maybe that you're working on or just DIU more broadly is working on? You know, I'm part of the cyber portfolio at DIU and we probably have somewhere in the range of 15, perhaps 20 projects that are, you know, at various stages of investigation or funding or execution or transition. The couple that come to mind for me, one of course is my next project. And that is, uh, it, it's focused on uh, industrial control system cybersecurity. The Army owns and operates essentially manufacturing depots all over the country. There's a couple dozen of them and they want to increase the level of security, especially on the OT side of the uh, equation. That's the actual equipment that controls the manufacturing devices. There's a DMZ between an IT network and an OT network and then the, net, the OT networks themselves uh, tend to be signal oriented. And being able to improve the security and control of those uh, OT networks and alert on threat activity would be a really valuable thing to the Army. So that's, that's a project that we just signed an agreement for and we are going to be kicking it off Another one that I think is kind of an interesting project in the cyber portfolio has to do with uh, intelligence security operations centers. So, you know, the project is exploring the idea of adding uh, AI capabilities to effectively create a virtual tier one analyst to, to detect attacks that may be occurring so that it can be brought to it the attention of real analyst more rapidly. So that's a pretty interesting kind of leading edge sort of thing. And then maybe the last one to uh, talk about is uh, it's, it's our Hunt Forward project. And uh, we, we would like to have uh, a, a better ability to respond to incidents in unprotected and uncontrolled environments. So that project goes down that path of uh, effectively bringing a portable threat hunting platform that's designed to find, report on, and eliminate activities on non-U.S. infrastructure. Pretty interesting project. All right, so you answered the one question about the industrial control systems. You said we signed an agreement. We'll be kicking off very soon. What about these other two? Are they also in the RFP stage? I know, or the OTA stage, or they've already been are they down the path of being worked on and, and you have, you're working with specific industry partners? Both of those are active projects in the implementation stage and testing stage, or all three of them. 
good to know that way you don't get a lot of calls from vendors who are saying, how do I apply? How do I get on board? These, right. are, these are already done. Do you have anything that you can uh, give us a preview on that maybe vendors should look out for in the coming weeks or coming months? You know, we very actively try to solicit responses to our AOIs and we, we post them all. We have a mechanism to reach out to those who have registered their interest in, cert, you know, in certain uh, types of projects. And that's the way in which we get the word out is, is through that uh, mechanism. And, you know, for, for listeners who, who want to be added to emailing lists, so to speak, they, they just need to uh, contact us. There's a way to do so. Uh, right on our website, and they can be added to the list, and they'll be notified as new uh, projects are uh, posted. Rick, I very much enjoyed our conversation today. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so let me thank my guest. Rick Simon is the program manager for the Secure Cloud Management Project and a contractor in the Defense Innovation Unit. Rick, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Good talking to you. I'm Jason Miller, and we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll shift gears to hear from the Navy about their cybersecurity efforts. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this final segment of the show, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel discussion at the recent FCA Nova Navy IT Day. On that panel was Chris Cleary, the Principal Cyber Advisor for the Department of Navy, and Scott St. Pierre, the Deputy Director for Enterprise Networks and Cybersecurity for the Naval Operations for Information Warfare. First, we hear from Chris Cleary. Cyber is a warfighting domain. Um, I'm preaching to the choir here because I know most of the people in this audience would believe these same things. Um, the further you get away from the cyber community, you know, us, the people that deliver these services and provide these capabilities, that belief system might not be as strong when you move over to some of the more kinetic warfighting means and methods uh, and cyber as a, as a sort of uh, fledgling domain that's getting up off its feet um, as a warfighting community uh, is trying to find sort of parity with its kinetic warfighting brethren. So that's part of being, you know, religion to the, to the masses, right? So as we, as we try to take the message outside of this room and bring it to the other organizations that are supported by all the things that, that we do to get them to acknowledge the dependencies that they have on, on these environments, uh, and then and the criticality of those things. And then the, and the last thing I'll sort of end it with is, you know, as we move through this as a warfighting domain, uh, you all are the ball-bearing factories of the future. You know, this is where our adversaries are spending their time. They're spending their time focused on what you're doing because you are providing those services and capabilities to us. And without, and, and when, as we stay in this, this new sort of, we, we talk about this competition continuum, and the way that we're going to engage with our adversaries below this level of armed conflict. Uh, our adversaries are really, really good at finding our, our, our weak, soft, squishy points. And in a lot of instances, that's you. Um, the, way that, the way our adversaries can kind of engage you directly without having to come to, at us directly, which you know, lowers the level of, of us potentially getting into conflict because they've been at your back door for you know, decades now, and it's just an easy place to be. And how do we, how do we continue to support you as a defense industrial base uh, and, and you know, potentially at some instance in the future you know, be able to participate in your defense? Uh, so yeah, so with that, again, as we go through this conversation, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm very much on the warfighting side of all this and, and the critical dependencies that we have on you as a community to be able to maintain providing us those, those services uh, and capabilities at scale. 
And with that, Scott. Okay. <clears throat> Morning. Uh, my name is Scott St. Pierre. I'm the Deputy Director for Enterprise Networks and Cybersecurity in the, on the Chief of Naval Operations Staff. Um, I want to touch on three topics. I'm going to depart from the norm um, and talk at a much, much higher level than we're used to talking. I want to talk about a culture shift that we need to have in order to really move forward with cybersecurity. I want to talk about system design and how we really get after that. And I want to talk about the DIB partnership, the defense industrial base and our relationship with industry. Uh, but before I get started, I want to give you a little bit of a context. Um, I look at um, the information system as a whole in its entirety. Um, as the Navy's data officer, I own the data portion of it and the guidance that needs to be put out there to manage data. I was an enterprise systems engineer on the combat system side where I looked at how the systems came together, what the integration was going on and the like. And I looked at it from um, what we needed to do to ensure our systems were interoperable. Um, as the NAV CCIO, I owned all of the defense business systems and all the shore enterprise uh, cybersecurity. So I looked at it from that standpoint of view. And there is a difference between the defense business systems and how we protect those and the national security systems and how we have to protect those. And I'll touch a little bit more on that in a minute. But it's important to focus on the information system because there's really four elements at play here. The first is there's the system that's under development. It might be the Aegis Combat System and it might be ERP. It doesn't matter which. But the information that those systems will process are at the core of what we're trying to protect. But then there's the information systems that process all of our program information. That's the information systems that you all own. It's the information systems on the shore side that Navy uses, like NMCI and OneNet, obviously across DOD and what we're doing with O365 and moving to the cloud. Um, but it's also what we have at our warfare centers and what we refer to as our, our accepted networks. They're not defense business systems. They're not national security systems, but they're in that middle ground, and we're working through how we're going to actually deal with those. Cybersecurity, a long time ago, when it was information assurance, was defined as um, the need to protect the information and the information system. And unfortunately, we moved away from that definition because I think that's critical because that's the holistic picture that we need to paint. So the culture shift. PMs. Our PMs and your PMs have been um, tasked to deliver mission performance. And that's the wrong approach today. We need to task them to deliver secure mission performance. And to do that, we have to build cybersecurity into the design from the start. Now, unfortunately, I'm probably talking to a lot of cybersecurity folks, so you get it. The question is, how do we change the culture in the folks that are, first of all, delivering the system, and also those folks that are managing the program information on their systems? So that's a critical piece of where we need to go. In order to, to ensure that cybersecurity's uh, a fundamental uh, element of the design, we need to start delivering it as if it's a standard feature. Think of the electric window in your car. A long time ago, it was that, you know, roll up, roll down, right? Uh, today, it's a standard feature, and the cost on that electric window has come down significantly. We need to do the same thing with cybersecurity. System design. Today, um, cybersecurity is on one side of the table, and the mission performance is on the other side of the table. Cybersecurity must become a key system attribute of all designs to ensure that we balance the trade. If we're going to deliver secure mission performance, it all has to be looked at in the holistic approach from the very first point of entry into the, the, the overall system all the way down to the lowest element in the system. We need to refocus our design on a holistic complementary security architecture across the platform, be it a building like this one, a ship, an aircraft, a submarine, a Humvee, a TAOM or a TAOC with the Marine Corps. 
That cybersecurity architecture has to give us the inheritance models so that our information system managers, the folks that are building or maintaining that system, know what they're responsible for. Today, cybersecurity has become the end-all, be-all, and I have responsibility for physical security. I have responsibility for personnel security. I have responsibility for um, environmental control. That makes absolutely no sense. We need to build a cybersecurity IPT and bring in the responsible and accountable folks who have the expertise to do physical security and do it correctly. But to make me, the information system owner, responsible for the physical security of a building doesn't make an awful lot of sense. So we need to change the way we approach that. And finally, we're taking steps now to start authorizing the enclave or system of system and the platform instead of the individual system. Most of our program managers have been told, you need to implement all controls in 800-53, but it is tailorable, so you can weed out a few of them. The problem with that is we look at it um, with blinders on. We aren't looking to the left. We're not looking to the right. We're not taking that holistic view. When we start looking at that system of system of the enclave, what we start to see is how many vulnerabilities exist in those 30 systems that make up the Aegis Combat System. When we look at it from that standpoint of view, it helps us prioritize the things that we need to go fix. So taking a look at it from an enclave, system to system, and the platform, coupling it with the system design, we already have a, a good start to, to move forward. Lastly, the defense in-depth base and our partnership with industry. We know, because we're in cybersecurity, that we're in the fight of our lives. And we have been for the last 10, 15, 20 years since we, Navy, and DOD at large, have made the move to COTS technology. There are inherent challenges with connecting everything to everything, which is where we need to go to be able to take the fight to the enemy and retain our tactical advantage. Today, the defense industrial base and industry is is the target of the adversary. The adversary wants to gain that technical edge to catch up to us rapidly. They don't have to spend a dime on our DT&E. They don't have to pour a dime into their designs. They just steal it, and they've caught up to us. And now we're in what we're calling the... um, Help me out, Chris. The uh, why am I dropping sync on this? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. The, the global, the near peer, the, the near peer competition. Sorry, um, your adversary. Sure. The key, though, is the reason they're they're grabbing that technical edge is because tomorrow the U.S. is is the target. They're biding their time. They're very patient. Um, they're looking to get that um, that technical edge so that um, tomorrow they'll be able to do it, and more important, they'll be able to do it with cyber. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a panel discussion at a recent FCN Nova Navy IT Day. On that panel was Chris Cleary, the Principal Cyber Advisor for the Department of Navy, and Scott St. Pierre, the Deputy Director for Enterprise Networks and Cybersecurity for the Naval Operations for Information Warfare. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.